And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. I mean, truly, when you, you know, when you see our kids, and I truly believe that they are our children, they are the children of our country, of our communities. I, I mean, our future is really bright if we, if we prioritize them and therefore prioritize the climate crisis. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stu does America. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to subscribe to Blaze TV. Use the promo code Stu to save yourself 10 bucks. If you're watching on YouTube, what are you going to do right now? Everybody, click like on the video at the exact same time. Just make sure you synchronize it. Uh, Ryan T. Anderson is back to talk about the left's abortion addiction. We'll break down a few of Biden's latest lies. It's going to be a long segment. But we start by doing the California invasion. And I could do a show entitled The California Invasion. And we can make it like all about the border, right, where the people are crossing the border into California and disrupting those communities. We could talk about the invasion of uh, the, the Soros DAs. We could talk about the invasion into California of so many homeless people and crime and all of the problems that are facing California. But no, that's not what we're doing today. We're doing the opposite. We're talking about how California is attempting to invade the rest of the country. I'm sick of it. Are you sick of it? I live in Texas and I like Texas the way Texas is. I've lived in a bunch of other states. I've liked those states. California's got some great stuff about it. That doesn't mean I want the rest of the country to turn into California, especially when you talk about policy and what's going on there. Right now, there is a new Supreme Court case that's going to be heard uh, this week uh, that could raise the price of pork. Yes, we're talking pork here. Pork futures. Who's up for some pork future, pork belly future talk here on Studios America. But this one's important because it's basically on the Commerce Clause. And the idea conceptually here is California puts these standards in on uh, how much space a, uh, a pig, a hog has to have as it's being raised to turn into a, you know, a, a pork chop. And cause that's how we do these things. And uh, the idea is that they're putting these new uh, standards in that because they're California, because they're such a big market, because a bunch of other states wind up following the lead of California, individual private companies have to change the way they do business to match those California standards, which hurts everybody because everybody has to deal with the new high prices, not just California. And there's a Supreme Court case. Maybe we'll do a segment on this at some point because I'm not, uh, it's not so cut and dried the way this, this should go if you're a conservative, but we'll get into that at a later time. My point though is that this is what California does. This is a strategy. It's a strategy in which they will change their laws in a bold way that makes it impossible for other states, big companies that need to serve the whole country to just lose out on what, 16 to 20% of the country. They have to change their laws and they change their practices to fit California's dumb regulations. And this is happening and it's affecting you no matter where you live in this country. 
California is invading. We know about their ban to sale new gasoline cars uh, by 2035 will likely speed a wider transition to electric vehicles because many other states follow California standards. There's 17 that are basically signed up for whatever California does, though they some of them have veto ability and some of them may veto this particular thing. But so many of them go along with it. And California is trying to influence. They don't care what you vote for. They don't care if you disagree with what they're doing there. They're going to make this happen whether you like it or not. They're going to go around the system that we've created and essentially take federalism and try to use it against the other states because they happen to be a big state. We've seen this with gas prices. Now, of course, California pays the highest gas prices, basically, that you're going to see. Maybe Hawaii's higher, but there's kind of an explanation for that one. Every other state has lower gas prices. California is much higher, but California continues to rise to take the prices that we pay and jack them up all around the country. Uh, Valero is firing back uh, against California because California decided to blame them. They said, hey, you know, uh, it's these refineries. It's these gas stations. They're really screwing us over. That's why the prices are so high here. Let me give you just a quick excerpt of what Valero wrote. For Valero, California is the most expensive operating environment in the country and a very hostile regulatory environment for refining. California policymakers have knowingly adopted policies with the expressed intent of eliminating the refinery sector. They're trying to destroy the industry. California requires refiners to pay very high carbon cap and trade fees and burden gasoline with the low uh, with the cost of low carbon fuel standards. With a backdrop of these po- policies, not surprisingly, California has seen refineries completely close or shut down major units. When you shut down refinery operations, you limit the resilience of the supply chain. Uh, yeah, you kind of do. Moreover, California is, quote, largely isolated from fuel markets. Central and Eastern uh, uh, U.S. and state regulations mandate a unique blend of gasoline, which makes California the most challenging market to serve. That's the case with everything. It's the case with every business. It's why all of these businesses are constantly sprinting away from California. You're seeing a massive influx of tech to Tennessee, to Texas, uh, to other states in the South. You're seeing uh, people going across the borders anywhere else because they know they can get a friendlier environment. And, you know, this is, of course, a state. If you've ever been to California, when it's like 107 degrees here, it's still nice there. When it gets freaking cold in the, in the Northeast, it's still nice there. There are a lot of benefits of living in California. And Gavin Newsom and the government there is so bad, people don't even care. Like, I'd rather freeze to death. I would rather sweat bullets in the walk from my apartment to my car every day, I would rather get in and literally cook in my own juices than live in California and deal with this nonsense. Now, if you don't have a car and the gas prices are too high, what are you going to do? You could, I guess you could take the train, right? Well, there's a problem there as well because the California mindset is all over the place and Joe Biden has jumped in, which always makes things worse. Rail Union has rejected a Biden-brokered labor deal, raising the prospect of a strike. This would cost you even more money. If you think inflation is going up now, wait till you see this take shape. And this all points back to the California way of doing business. Constant regulation, constant corruption, constant spending, missing budgets, screwing everything up, and then blaming it on the rest of the country. This is the way California does it. And Gavin Newsom wants to be your next president, by the way. I don't know if there's any secret here on this one, but he wants to be your next president. And we, by the way, I should point this out from a show last week, if you, in case you missed it, go back and watch. It was right at the beginning of one of the shows. We still have had no one, no one come out 
and say that Gavin Newsom is not the serial killer in California. We don't know who it is, but no one is saying that Gavin Newsom isn't the serial killer. Why? Why hasn't anyone come out to clear his name? Why haven't the police come out and said, hey, you know who's not the serial killer? The governor. He looks like a serial killer. Sure. Do we suspect him every time there's a death in this in this state? Of course we do. But he's not the serial killer. Why don't they do that? Separate question. Different show. Uh, What I do want to talk about today is the way California does business. And I want to personify it for you. I want to take it. I want to show you how this works from beginning to end. And it's something we have covered for years and years and years. If you think it's only been Studios America, no, no. We go back way before that because this is not a new thing. The New York Times is somewhat new to the table here as they have finally come out and admitted the truth that we've been talking about forever. How California's bullet train went off the rails. Yes, It's off the rails, everybody. What a shocker. I am stunned by this. The bullet train isn't working. I don't even understand. Let me give you some of the background from The New York Times. When California voters approved a bond issue for this project in 2008, the rail line was to be completed by 2020, and its costs seemed astronomical at the time. $33 billion. Now, $33 billion for a train is pretty freaking high. And at the time, everyone gasped when they heard that uh, that price tag. But there's a little thing that goes on when you have voting uh, direct democracy uh, when it comes to borrowing and spending money. People do an analysis of it. Well, am I going to vote for this or am I not? And they do an analysis called a benefit analysis, not a cost benefit analysis. No, no. It's a benefit analysis. Would I at some point in my life? like to take a fast train from San Francisco to Los Angeles in two hours and 40 minutes? Well, that just seems delightful. I mean, I wouldn't do it all the time. Obviously, there's there's airplanes that make the trip in like 40 minutes. But maybe once I would do that with my kid, my kid would like to see the countryside breeze by in a blurred fashion at 200 miles an hour. That seems like it would be fun to do exactly one time. And people say, hey, why not? Trains are cool. This happens all over the place all the time. This is not just a California problem. This happens all over the place. Trains, as I've said many times on this program, are dumb. Okay? The year is 2022. We don't need trains anymore, except for freight, and except for existing lines in very highly populated areas like the Northeast. Everywhere else, the light rail system that you think you, you love so much, it sucks. I've done... 20 analysis on this. Every single one of them sucks. Well, not the one in my city. Yes, the one in your city sucks. It's costing you a fortune. Not nearly enough people ride this stupid thing. Well, I got on it after a game and it was crowded. It doesn't matter. When you look at the analysis from beginning to end, all of these things suck. They never do what they, they say they're going to do. They never hit the standards. They always cost more money. And at the end of the day, even if you, it works perfectly, you have an entire city of people not using the train paying for people who use the train. That's just inherently wrong. But that's a whole other story. Let me go into the details here. Remember, $33 billion supposed to be done by 2020. Now, you might recognize we've already passed 2020. How did this turn out? Let's look. 14 years later, construction is now underway on a part Part, not the whole, but a part 
of a 171-mile starter line, not the whole thing, connecting a few cities in the middle of California, which has been promised not for 2020, but for 2030, and few expected to make that goal. How many disclaimers did I have to make during that sentence? It wasn't 2020, it's now 2030. It's not the whole line, it's now a smaller line. It's not uh, even that whole starter, uh, starter line. It's a small section of it that isn't even done, but has been started and no one even thinks they're gonna hit the 2030 goals. Well, that worked out so well, but there's more to this fun little story. Let me take you back in time. Yes, I promised you would go back in time in this episode. Back in 2013. Now, this show, of course, Stu Does America, the, you know, uh, highly acclaimed, uh, award-winning, award-eligible um, uh, program. And it is, uh, of course, fantastic. But there was a, a precursor show to this, a show I did weekly called The Wonderful World of Stu. And I was obsessed with how much trains sucked even back then. And not just every other train system, which I did a bunch of stuff on how bad your train system is, no matter where you live in this country. But we actually talked about this specific train program back in 2013. Let me give you a quick clip of this interview. It is the most expensive project in human history. No hyperbole aside, I don't even think the Great Pyramid of Giza cost this. Now, granted, granted they used a lot of slave labor back then, <laughs> but if you had OSHA and you had a prevailing uh, union wage on it, I still don't think it would be as expensive as the 68 gazillion dollar uh, <laughs> choo-choo to nowhere here in California. So yeah, it is the largest project in human history. When it was first passed, it was supposed to cost how much? 33 billion, it is shot up to 100 billion and they realized that was not working too well with the public. So they uh, got together, erased a few zeros and put it down to 68 billion. But of course we know it will uh, come in somewhere north of probably 200 billion when this is all done. But you know, it's just, it's just a few billion here, a few billion there. It's not real money. That was Eric Christian from the, he's the executive director of the Coalition for Fair Employment in Construction. Is he still? I don't know. Poor Eric. Eric could be doing anything these days. Eric could be like a senator. He might be running, he might be working at uh, the Tilt-A-Whirl at your local carnival. I don't even know what he's doing anymore. The poor guy has been working against this project for so many years, he may have gone into a totally different line of employment by this point. But even then, we knew it was going to be way more than $33 billion. You heard his estimate was now that it was up to $100 billion, they backed it off to $68 billion. Well, where are we today? Now, remember, this has not been built. Okay, not been built. They're not even planning to build the whole thing right now. And they don't think they're going to hit a goal of 2030. From the New York Times, costs have continued to escalate. When California High Speed Rail Authority issued its 2022 draft business plan in February, it has estimated an ultimate cost at as high as $105 billion. Less than three months later, the final plan, quote unquote, raised the estimate to $113 billion. That's just the starting point, my friends. His $200 billion estimate is probably going to wind up being low if the thing is ever built. And most likely, honestly, it's been such a catastrophe that they may well never finish it. They may just burn this money, torch it, light it up on fire, and have a bunch of empty bridges that trains never cross all throughout the, uh, the center of California. 
Now, part of this is the corruption element. They, instead of having, you know, going on a straight line, which you probably would want to do with a bullet train, right? They diverted it to all these different politicians' communities 40 miles out of the way, and that's been a big hassle. But it's more than that. Federal grants of $3.5 billion for what was supposed to be a shovel-ready project, remember that term from the Obama era? Pushed the state to prematurely issue the first construction contracts when it lacked any land to build on. It resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in contractor delay claims. Well, of course, you know, sometimes it's hard to build a train when you don't own the land the train is on. This can be challenging for many. And I would remind you, we got planes. Planes, they fly in the sky. High in the sky above everybody. And then they land at airports. We already have the airports. This is the one thing about, here's the difference. There's a couple differences uh, between planes and trains. And let me, uh, let me just walk you through uh, them here. Uh, number one, planes are faster. So they would be the optimal choice between planes and trains. Number two, plane travel is now cheaper. Back in the day when like Japan was building um, high-speed rail, it was the opposite in like the 60s. But, you know, it's a long time after that, boys and girls. And so now plane travel is cheaper than train travel. And the third thing that is really a differentiating factor here is when you have a train and you have two points, you want to connect them on the train. You've got to put a line. Usually it's going to be really squiggly and going up to everybody's districts and having all sorts of fun things and goes back and forth all over the place. And then it comes in an end. And what you have there along that entire line, the squiggly line that goes to everybody's district that wants to get paid and, and, and do a favor for a friend and bring new travelers there. That's one giant infrastructure project. The entire path, all winding through hundreds and hundreds of miles. Like imagine building a mall, or we've tried to see how hard it is to build a wall on our border. How hard it would be to, to create a six, seven, 800 mile infrastructure project. Very difficult, right? With planes, you have two infrastructure projects at each end, and then the plane takes off and it flies in the air over all of the train tracks below, and then lands at the other airport. A much better way to do business, and it costs a heck of a lot less. I have to give you this, though, before we uh, move on from this topic, because this is what California is doing to us. This is uh, Michael Tenenbaum. He's a former Wall Street investment banker, and he wound up being the first chairman of the Rail Authority. This is now 20 years ago. Listen to this quote is jaw-dropping. Quote, I was totally naive when I took the job, said Michael Tenenbaum, a former Wall Street investment banker, who was the first chairman of the Rail Authority 20 years ago. I spent my time and didn't succeed. I realized the system didn't work. I just wasn't smart enough. I don't know how they can build it now. Oh, well, now that we spent how many billions of dollars, it's good to know that he doesn't think he's smart enough. And honestly, he's beating himself up a little bit there. It's not him. Nobody's smart enough to make this work. Because it's a completely failed system and should not exist in the first place. And government certainly shouldn't be involved in it. And I leave you with this here from, from Trainland. SNCF, the French National Railroad, was among bullet train operators from Europe and Japan that came to California in the early 2000s with hopes of getting a contract to develop the system. The company pulled out in 2011. SNCF was very angry. They told the state they were leaving for North Africa which was less politically dysfunctional. 
They went to Morocco and helped build them build a rail system. Morocco's bullet train started service in 2018. California is worse than North Africa at doing this. Absolutely remarkable. And while it's very tempting to sit back and blame Gavin Newsom for this, He's not the only governor who's been involved in this in California, and tons and tons of other politicians have been there. But I want to draw particular attention to one politician heavily involved in this particular disaster. You might notice uh, and might know who this guy is because everything he touches is turning your life to crap right now. His name is Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., a man very, very famous for loving trains. You know, he took the Amtrak every day to work when he lived in Washington, D.C. He had his own car. Everybody loved him at the train station. Good old rail bucket Joe getting there back and forth to work every day on a train. And he loved trains so much, he made sure that he always pushed for them, including a giant stimulus project that we just passed, somebody of that that you just we just went through. By the way, some Republicans voted for that one as well. Uh, some of that money will go to the California rail debacle. But the other thing was he was not only in as the vice president when all of this money started flowing to uh, California and caused a lot of these problems. He was behind the stimulus project as well that got passed and dished a bunch of money towards this project. And he was the guy that was, he was specifically named by Barack Obama to oversee the money that was spent for the stimulus project. It was his goal for this exact thing not to happen. It was his job to stop catastrophes with all the billions of dollars you were giving these states for shovel-ready projects. And here we are. We lasted through the rest of Barack Obama's presidency. Then we had, we had uh, the Donald Trump presidency. Then somehow Joe Biden gets in office, and we're still working on the same crap heap of a problem that he was supposed to control way back then. That, my friends, is California and Joe Biden invading the rest of the country. If you don't want your country to turn out like California, we better step up and do something about it. And I've got an idea of what you can do. It comes up in just a few weeks, let's say four from today. If you're anything like me, you have a certain tendency to put things off until the very last minute. And while most of the time that works out, kind of sometimes, the one thing you cannot really afford to wait on is setting up term coverage life insurance. You've probably seen the insurance uh, commercials on TV and thought, you know, I'll look into that at some point. You know, I'm, what, what, am I going to die? I'm pretty much indestructible. Look at me. Look at this physique. I'm never going to die. Um, now, of course, this isn't something you can wait on. You never know when something's uh, going to happen. And you need to make sure your, your family is taken care of. So choose life insurance through Ladder today. Ladder is 100% digital. No doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million in coverage or less, just answer a few questions about your health uh, in an application. That's it. Ladder customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 on Trustpilot. And they made Forbes' best life insurance 2021 list. 
You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel any time. You can get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days, which is great. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're rated A and A plus by AM Best. And finally, since life insurance costs more as you age, this is something you gotta think about. Now's the time to cross it off your list. For those people thinking like, oh, I should have renegotiated my mortgage at some point. Yeah, I understand. The, the, the life insurance thing, the, the rates are only going up for you. You're going to get older. So go to ladderlife.com slash stew today to see if you're instantly approved. L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash stew. It's ladderlife.com slash stew. I'm happy to welcome Ryan T. Anderson back to the program. He's the president for the Ethics and Public Policy Center and co-author of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which is available now wherever you get your books. Be sure to grab a copy. Uh, Ryan, how's it going? It's going well. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, your book came out, I think, four days after Roe versus Wade was overturned. Really incredible timing on this. And I think it really is incredible timing because, yes, Roe versus Wade being overturned was a big part of what of what the pro-life side of this argument was trying to do. But it really just allowed this conversation to begin. Uh, Now we're at a place where we need to convince people of what the right side of this issue is. And that's exactly what your book attempts to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of people thought that by overturning Roe, the court would somehow be outlawing abortion. That's not what happened. Um, By overturning Roe, the court returned the question to the democratic branches of government, which means you and I need to persuade our neighbors to vote the right way on this issue. That's why my co-author and I, we were working on the book while the Supreme Court was you know, in the process of deciding the case, because we could count to five. We thought there's now five votes on the Supreme Court to admit they got Roe wrong. But that means we're now in the persuasion business. We need to persuade people about the right to life, about the sanctity, the dignity of the unborn child, and about the, the, the unjust um, act of abortion. It's an injustice. And we have to be willing to um, uh, speak the truth on this. Hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. And although I, I've, I've received a much different message from uh, the, the media over the past few months, which has informed me basically nonstop that almost everybody is on the side of the pro-choice side of this argument, that they don't like that Roe versus Wade was overturned. They don't like the fact that Republicans are taking control of their bodies. And now Democrats have decided to run this campaign largely based on the abortion issue. My initial reaction to this was, look, the right has been pushing for this for a long time. They got good news here, right? This is good news with Roe versus Wade going away. The left never really felt the need to do anything because of the way the Supreme Court was acting. So they were the ones that were initially animated by the abortion decision. But once we get close to an election, I feel like that's going to overturn. Are we seeing any signs of that? I mean, the public opinion pollings, um, uh, they don't support the pro-choice side because the pro-choice side here is extreme. It's radical. Uh, it's unpopular. Uh, they don't just support abortion in certain tragic circumstances, you know, maybe rape or incest or the life of the mother. They support their official platform is support for abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy with taxpayer funding of abortion. And that is not popular at all with the American people. By contrast, look at something like Senator Lindsey Graham's uh, bill, which would uh, prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. 70% of Americans uh, support that. 15 weeks you can't find a single European nation that allows elective abortion after 15 weeks. Um, so the pro-life side, the Republican Party side on this, 
is much more popular than not. I'll also say as we get closer to November, the issues that are motivating people are um, the economy, it's inflation, it's gas prices. Um, the abortion issue might have played well right after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. It's not uh, what's motivating most voters as we head into November. I, I, I kind of see that the same way. And, and I, I don't know how to explain some of the coverage. I mean, they seem to I mean, let me give you this, this is from Axios. This is the uh, the amount of money spent. Uh, by topic, uh, by uh, as we lead into this election, and the dark green part of this graph, if we have it, yeah, here it is, is reproductive rights. The the amount of money Democrats are, per, are are dumping into this to try to animate their base is extreme at this point. It's the number one issue for the left. And and is this just a situation, Ryan, where they just don't have anything else to run on, so they're just picking anything they can get their hands on, or do they think this is really something that's going to animate a, a surprise in November? elections? I mean, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. They, they really don't have much to run on. And you can't run on Joe Biden's record. You can't run on the Democrats in Congress. You can't run on the economy. You can't run on foreign policy right now. So what do you run on? But then the second thought is, look, midterm elections, they really are a question about turnout. I mean, a lot of voters don't even bother to vote in the midterms. They vote for president, perhaps. Lots of people just don't vote, period. So it's not a bad strategy to think, you know, what issue right now would most motivate your base to show up to the polls. And it may very well be uh, that for the most hardcore progressive activists, abortion is their most holy sacrament. I think that speaks very ill of the modern Democratic Party. It's certainly different than where the Democrats were a generation ago, where they were the party of the little guy. Now they're the party killing the little guy. Mm, oh gosh, that's it's unbelievable. Do, do you think that their change in language and verbiage was part of the change that we saw even in Roe versus Wade. Obviously, that was a case decided by the Supreme Court. But I think the attitudes over abortion had changed over a long period of time from when I remember when I was in you know, high school, the arguments on abortion from the left were, look, safe, legal and rare. This is a tough time for for women. They're making difficult choices. You have to understand. And while I wasn't won over by that argument, it at least had some sympathy it's turned into shout your abortion and and tell everyone how wonderful it is. And we're not pro-choice, we're pro-abortion. And these things, I think, have hurt the left. And I think I think that's a, honestly, in this case, a positive. But it, it does seem like a strange approach. No, you're, you're exactly right. My, my co-author and I, one of the chapters of the book, you know, we go through systematically all the different ways in which abortion uh, has torn apart the country and how it's harmed everything it's touched. One is how it's harmed our uh, politics and our political parties. We once had lots of pro-life Democrats. Uh, we once had not just pro-life Democrats amongst the voters, but amongst office holders. Likewise, insofar as uh, Democrats embraced abortion, it was as like a tragic evil, a necessary evil. But it was something that was bad. That's why you want it safe, legal, and rare. And we document that trajectory to now, as you point out, it's shout your abortion. It's not, you know, we're not just pro-choice, we're pro-abortion. It's a positive social good. And I think, again, that's a negative trajectory for the Democratic Party, and it's been a negative trajectory for our nation. It would be much better for us as voters if we had a meaningful political choice between two major political parties 
neither of which was committed to a fundamental injustice. Mm. And people forget, you know, Casey, uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Casey's a famous Democratic family in Pennsylvania. This is not it's, it's just it's just things have switched like crazy. Um, let me go to, to a specific race here in, in this coming election, which is the, the race in Ohio, J.D. Vance uh, and Tim Ryan. Now, Tim Ryan's kind of proposed as this moderate Democrat, a working style Democrat against uh, J.D. Vance. And in the debate they had, it was last night or the night before, uh, J.D. Vance was asked about a particular case, a case in Ohio where a 10-year-old who had been uh, raped, uh, wanted to get an abortion, was forced to leave the state to to get the abortion. And Vance was pressed on this over and over and over again. This is obviously a difficult thing to do. He sort of landed on, look, you know, um, it's obviously a tragic situation, but a 10-year-old should be able to get an abortion. This is the most extreme possible challenge, though, to the pro-life movement. If someone asks this question to a politician, they're all going to get it. Every Republican's going to get it here. What should they be saying? I mean, look, I think as a moral matter, uh, the circumstances in which a human being is conceived does not at all um, speak to the moral worth, the dignity, the value, the intrinsic worth of that human being. Mm. Um, And so obviously rape is a terrible evil. It's unjust. uh, It's a gross offense against human dignity and human rights. But the child is not the perpetrator. Um, And so as a moral matter, that child has the same dignity and rights as you and me and every one of our viewers. As a political matter, I think it's entirely understandable why a politician might say, all right, let's just avoid um, you know, the toughest of cases. We'll have an exception for rape. Will you meet me halfway for the other 99% of abortions that take place? Are you willing to prohibit lethal violence in the womb if I'm willing to agree to a rape exception? Uh, call the progressives uh, on their bluff because it's not, it's not just those tragic cases, those difficult cases that they want to have legalized abortion. They want legalized abortion throughout all nine months. So I think it's a smart move on uh, J.D. Vance's part to you know, turn the tables on Tim Ryan and say, all right, well, which protections for unborn human life do you support? Right? I'm willing to say as a political compromise, we'll have a rape exception. What are you willing to do as a political compromise? And the answer is nothing. Mm. Right? I mean, he's not in favor of any meaningful protections for unborn human life. And so I think we should be turning the tables uh, on our opponents um, take away the, the the difficult case and say, look, we're willing to do that as a political matter. It doesn't change the moral value of the unborn child. What are you willing to do? And see what they say. Yeah, and, and Vance also kind of turned it around <laughs> talking about that particular case, which was just an illegal immigrant who actually raped the person, uh, the, the little girl. I mean, it's just a terrible, terrible story. But like the policies that Ryan support you know, can lead to things like that happening more often, which is, is, is the real initial tragedy. Maybe, you know, stopping it at the beginning would be the best possible approach. Um, but let me go the other way and ask you this, Ryan. Why is it only Republicans and pro-life proponents that have to get pushed to these extreme edges? I, yes, occasionally I will see a politician, an adept one, as you just pointed out, turn the tables and say, well, what about nine months? What's going on there? But the, there is no effort by the media to get a Tim Ryan who purports to be a Democrat to answer for his extreme edge, which he seems to support. I mean, he seems to be there saying all the way to nine months, the woman should have the choice. He's he's stated that before. Why is there no pressure on the other side of this from the media? Because the mainstream media is um, just you know explicitly biased on this. They're all in 
on abortion, unfortunately, it's very hard to find any um, pro-life mainstream uh, journalists. And it does impact their coverage, their reporting, their editorial decisions, how they frame stories, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think Senator Marco Rubio has done a really nice job on this. Um, you know, he, he sent out a, a letter to every one of the journalists that were covering him, asking him these tough questions, saying, you know, get back to me by a certain deadline on when you're going to be asking my opponent uh, these questions. Mm. And of course, none of them did. Right? I mean, it was it, it was a um, it was an exercise in just pointing out what we all already know, uh, that the media is very biased on this question. And so they only ask one side of the political divide tough questions and they give the other side a pass. It really would be interesting because I would love to see where these lines are. They're almost never expressed is any restriction from any of these people. And like, you know, we see the polls. I mean, you point out 70% of people in the uh, second trimester oppose abortion. It's up to 84 or 86% in the third trimester. These are are among our most uniting policies in public discourse to the opposition of abortion in the third trimester. Yet they never get pressed on this. It's incredibly frustrating for people who care about this issue. Well, I mean, thank you for highlighting this. I mean, this is why we need alternative media uh, channels, networks, um, to get the story out, to tell the truth when some of the um, legacy institutions refuse to do so. Well, if you think Ryan T. Anderson writes some good books, look how many books he owns. Thousands. <laughs> I've never seen more books in one place. Ryan T. Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a co-author with Alexander DeSantis, a great book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Don't miss out on this one. Ryan, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, this is a great time to tell you about preborn. Almost one out of every five Americans never have a chance to live outside the womb. Why? It's because of abortion. It's the leading cause of infant death in the world. Over 63 million babies just in this country alone. The the global number is a billion, a billion, a billion people that should be here that are not. And that's just since Roe versus Wade was enacted. A lot more will be aborted in, in its wake. As Ryan was just pointing out, we, are in a, we now need to persuade because, uh, you know, these states can change their laws to whatever they want. The Ministry of Preborn and Blaze Media are partnering to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022. They're working to put Planned Parenthood out of business by providing free ultrasounds to expecting mothers. 80% of the time, hearing that baby's heartbeat is enough to convince the mother to keep her baby. And when she chooses life, Preborn provides maternity and baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and much more free of charge. They support them after they make this great decision. That's their level of commitment to the preservation of life. Preborn has a passion to save unborn babies and from abortion and also help women come to Christ. Over the past 15 years, preborn centers have counseled over 450,000 women considering abortion. 188,000 babies have been saved. What a miracle this is. What a miracle this is. Will you help rescue babies' lives? To donate, you can dial pound 250 and use the keyword baby. That's pound 250. The keyword is baby. Or you can go to preborn.com slash stew, preborn.com slash stew. Protect life. Ah, so much to talk about, and I don't know how we're going to get to all of it uh, today. I should remind you, though, that we have studosmerch.com. It's up. It's available. You can get all your great stuff. This is a great time to load up for Christmas. Or if you uh, want to just make a statement on the last topic we just talked about, the issue of life, you can do that with your 624-22 merch. That's the day that it was overturned. Uh, Roe versus Wade, of course, the Dobbs case. Uh, 624-22, it's a, it's a strong statement. 
in, in the favor of life. And also, most of your liberal friends won't know what it means. And it's always fun to have more information than the people you're talking to. 62422, available now, stewdoesmerch.com. The code is stew10 to save 10%. stewdoesmerch.com. When it comes to liberals in Congress, they would never take uh, term limits. They could have them right now. I mean, it was Jim DeMint who did a, uh, a big uh, constitutional amendment years ago, said, hey, how about term limits for Congress? And I think it got 27 votes. Now, of course, the same people who are almost all still there are thinking to themselves, hey, we can't, uh, we're not going to limit our, our terms. We want to stay here forever. But what about the Supreme Court justices? We should probably stop them from having uh, long terms like this. Well, why? They want to get people like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito out. That's why. They want new, uh, new standards so they can force out the conservative justices that are thwarting their liberal agenda. Well, you know, since uh, Democrats are working hard to pass court purging with term limits, we need to stop even harder to stop it. Our friends at First Liberty Institute are doing a great job to do this. Uh, and if you want the Supreme Court to stay as it is, a, an institution in this country, well, you want to help them support this cause. SupremeCoup.com, SupremeCoup.com. These guys did great work in the Supreme Court. They were involved in all the big cases uh, over the past couple of years. SupremeCoup.com, SupremeCoup.com. At least four times, President Biden has described a ride on Amtrak to visit his sick mother in 2015 or 2016, recalling a conversation with a friendly train conductor. But Mr. Biden's mother died in 2010. The conductor also had been dead for several years by 2015. New story out about Joe Biden's lying. It is filled with anecdotes like this. Filled with them. Now, it also mentions Donald Trump in this way. Former President Donald Trump lied constantly. That's what they talk about. And they say how bad he was in comparison to Joe Biden. But listen to how they explain the lying from the president of the United States. Biden, storyteller teller in chief, spins yarns that often unravel. President Biden has been unable to break himself of the habit of embellishing narratives to weave a political identity. That just means lying. They were happy to say that about Donald Trump, apparently could not say that about Joe Biden. Uh, in Pennsylvania, the, heat, the race is heating up. Um, a new uh, billboard from John Fetterman says, Dr. Oz is a Cowboys fan. Mm. Now look, that is one of the worst things you can say about someone, I understand that. but especially in Pennsylvania. But still, I will just say, I'm getting to the point that Fetterman is so annoying. Is he even running a campaign? What is this? All he says is, oh, I can't believe Dr. Oz got crudite at the grocery store and he likes the Cowboys. And I think he, li he lives in New Jersey. Has he made any, does he, has he talked about a policy? How is Dr. Oz the policy-focused candidate in this race? It's incredible. I'm at the point where I don't care if the socialists have 99 seats in the Senate. I just don't want John Fetterman there. That's basically where I am. And finally, Troy, I, I hate to do this. I really hate to do this. I hate to defend a former Dallas Cowboy. It makes me ill inside to do it. But Troy Aikman is getting bashed now. They are trying to come after him because during the game last night when there was yet another ridiculous penalty for 
I, I think, tackling too hard in the game, uh, in the NFL game. He said, all right, this is getting ridiculous. We need to take the dresses off. Oh, well, you know what age we live in now, the woke age. You're not allowed to say take the dresses off. What about football players who do wear dresses? Why aren't we considering them? You know, here's the thing. Even if you're a dude and you're wearing a dress, you still should be playing football in the dress. So we should be taking the dresses off either way. But yet another ridiculous controversy. This world is getting so ridiculous, it's forcing me to defend Dallas Cowboys. It's a travesty. It's a sham. It's a mockery. It's a Travis sham mockery. Wherever you are, make sure to subscribe to the show and you can drop a comment under this if you're on YouTube. An algorithmic engagement comment helps the show. Melanie writes, will you be doing a live election night? If not, I wish you would. Actually, I will be part of the Blaze TV election night. We're going to be doing election night coverage uh, late into the morning. So uh, don't don't miss that. And also uh, on Wednesday, I guess that's tomorrow night on Glenn's TV show. I'm going to be part of a panel talking about the election and what's coming up as well. Don't miss that as well. BlazeTV.com slash Stu.